0: Just a quick note before we start, this entire first season of Inspired Business was recorded before the coronavirus outbreak in the UK, hence there being no mention of it in the interviews. Thanks. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to Inspired Business, the business podcast from the University of Derby. During this series, we are bringing you inspiring stories from across the business landscape in Derby, Derbyshire and beyond. We discuss the issues affecting your business and provide key insights from our guests for you to take away. I'm Toby Bradford, your host for the series. I'm joined by my co-host, business expert Angela Tooley, who will offer you valuable analysis on the topics we cover. This week, we look at leadership through the eyes of Richard Gerver, who started out in education and now gives advice to a wide range of businesses in in all sectors, from Olympic cycling to the music industry. He talks about how inspiration can come from all sectors and all people. So, Angela, how did he inspire you with his talk of leadership?
1: Hi, Toby. Isn't it a great story? And I sit here as a 40-something-year-old being inspired by Richard's Journey, but thinking about my 20-something self, what an inspiration to other people that someone who started out as a local primary school teacher has ended up being a globally recognised speaker to big companies, is an author. And actually, what a transition in his own career by taking something that he has developed as a unique skill in terms of his own leadership capabilities. He's learning from that and he's been able to translate it to the business world in a way where actually he's got leaders of big global corporations wanting to come to listen to him and get his advice. And I think what you can do with the skills that you develop over your career and where it can take you, it is just such a great story to inspire so many young people
0: And it's interesting how he's got there because it was acting was his first love. And then he moved into teaching and then he's moved through all that into leadership. So it's not being one thing. It's using the skills that you have and finding out where best they can work.
1: Yes. And this is an interesting thing about leadership is that what Richard's journey and... I'm sure many other people's journey when they reflect on it, having heard this interview, is is that leadership is something that is learned. You you don't get it from a textbook. It's about life's experiences inside and outside of work. And actually you learn from the challenges probably more than you learn from doing things right.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because being really good at something doesn't necessarily mean you'll be a great leader it's that ability to motivate it's that ability to inspire
1: which is interesting actually because i think many businesses particularly large businesses fall into the trap that they promote people into leadership positions because they're good managers they've got good technical skills and they excel at the role that they're in and just because you are a exceptional technical manager doesn't necessarily make you an exceptional leader
0: different between leadership and management which we will come into later on but for now Angela will be back later when we analyse Richard's interview, but let's go and see what Richard has to say. And I'd like to welcome Richard Gerver to our Inspired Business podcast. Hello, Richard. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hello,
2: yeah. So I am Richard Gerver, as it says on the tin. I am a former teacher, former head teacher, uh, a career I had for the best part of 20 years. I am a very proud alumni of the University of Derby and for the last uh, well just over a decade now I've worked as a speaker and an author and advisor specializing in elements of leadership learning cultures change and um my mantra simple thinking
0: simple thinking yeah. excellent so so when you say you're you're a speaker what exactly do you do what
2: well I I guess uh, I'm a bit of a hired gun really you know companies all over the world hold major conventions and conferences. And I get hired to go along and do an hour's keynote speech. Some people would describe it as motivational, but they're the ones that haven't been in my speeches. But, you know, the, the the my job is, I guess, to be a catalyst, is to get an audience from a company, companies from all kinds of different global settings, to think about different elements of of leadership and learning and development, and so I I sometimes describe myself a bit like a a grandparent. You know, when the parents drop the kids off, you fill you fill them up with e numbers, send them wappy, and then leave and leave the mess to the leadership of the company to sort out.
0: Yes, until you'd said that, I was just about to say I've heard you described as a thought leader. So you you give people ideas, and then they can start. Using yeah, that and, I mean and... I
2: you know the the problem is it's so hard I think sometimes to we we're, we're a culture where we we're obsessed with trying to put people in boxes and define yeah. them. You know, so again I sometimes I get labeled as a motivational speaker. I hate that term because then an audience sits there with their arms folded going, "We've had a crappy week, Richard, go on then do your best son." And and a thought leader and I'm I'm not entirely sure what that means either, but people expect you to come up with big thinks that nobody else has ever thunk about. And, you know, I I just am passionate about human development and leadership and learning and I'm very fortunate that when I get the opportunity to have a platform or a stage or a book that I'm writing that I just get the chance to share those thoughts with other people and hopefully catalyse the way they think some of their experiences to help them create strategies and ways forward for their own organisations and their own methodologies.
0: So this is, so you talk about to conferences business conferences a whole or?
2: assortment yeah i mean i still do a bit of work in in and around uh, education globally i talk to major corporations whether it's in the financial sector whether it's in other business sectors i've done some work with the music industry um, over the last few years i've done a lot of work in elite sport with um, the british olympic and you, paralympic could, teams
0: could you describe how what you do helps for, for instance, the, the music industry. And yeah, sport. sure.
2: I mean, the music industry is a really interesting one. And, and a lot of the work I, I did with them was based around my book, Change, Learn to Love It, Learn to Lead It. And they're a classic example of an industry that were in denial about technological evolution. You know, traditionally, the music industry, and particularly music labels, have seen themselves as the curators of music and therefore they felt that was very much their substantive role to moderate the quality of music bring music to the audience and ensure quality and of course profitability because they were the the link into to, from musician to to audience the music industry for many years were in denial about the impact of digital technology not just in terms of the the digital formats for music but you know social media and and formats like uh, facebook and twitter and 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 YouTube, and all of those elements, which actually allowed musicians to, to cut out the middleman. And so, what was a hugely complex and massive global industry suddenly found itself. In a being a circumvented. Of, yeah, completely and having to play a massive level of catch-up as they were trying to reinvent themselves. Now, I've no expertise in the music industry, but what that meant was you had people that had become really, really good at being efficient in their industry, and they didn't have the mindset to understand how they might want to go about owning change and transformation. And of course, what tends to happen in traditional businesses when you you start to feel that lag is you you go into survival mode and that's what the music industry had done which is perverse given that it's if you like in the creative arts sector where everything should be about innovation and creativity but a lot of the people working in that sector were very good at monetizing a traditional product coming out of a pr- traditional industry and so the work that I did with some of the leadership in those organizations was help them understand why some of their staff were adverse to even contemplating change change why they found the process difficult and what they could do to be better at it very interesting work and it, it got me the opportunity to meet some really fascinating people that i now have on my list of famous people that i throw up okay everybody. i won't ask you to list no, them because because
0: no, no. that would be mildly embarrassing for me um as much as anything else and sport as well. Is that is that a similar Very idea? Very interesting.
2: Yeah, I got involved with the British Olympic. I mean, the, the best example is British Olympic and Paralympic Association. And I got involved with them just after the 2012 London Olympics. And I was asked on the back, actually, of a couple of the senior people at, at UK Sport reading, again, my book asked me to go and do a session for the coaches, the Olympic and Paralympic coaches, because the great challenge for them was they just had the most successful Olympics in British sporting history, right? The London Olympics, forget just the quality of the event, was our most successful Olympics as a group of athletes, and therefore our results were unbelievable. And one of the really interesting challenges for them was if you looked at the pattern of data and history, every host nation had peaked in their home Olympics and then dropped off dramatically. Is the that, Olympics is that
0: additional motivation? Yeah, is that, yeah
2: absolutely. Yeah. And also, there's something which is profoundly, I think, transferable around success in any industry, which is on the way up, you've got. Not much to lose. Once you reach the pinnacle, and we can come back to this, when you reach the pinnacle, suddenly the stakes are much higher and you tend to protect what you have. Again, it's human nature. And so the fear with the British Olympic team after 2012 was how do we ensure that in the next four year cycle leading up to Rio in 2016 that we don't fall into that trap and that we, A, don't become complacent, but more importantly, that we don't just become protective of, well, these These were the systems and structures that got us to be brilliant in 2012. And actually, how do we go back and tell our Olympic cohorts that are going to be preparing for 2016 that we now have to change the rules and start again when, you know, a whole group of that cohort were coming back as gold, silver and bronze medal-winning olympians how do you then say well actually all of our training structures and systems now have to evolve because what the british olympic committee knew was particularly in sports like rowing and cycling where we had to put no finer point on it kick the asses of the australians and the Americans and the others, that they weren't going to go back, lick their wounds and just get on with it, that those organisations were going to go back to their countries, particularly the Australians and cycling, and use the Australian Institute of Sport to completely reinvent themselves so that they took the sport on. And actually the challenge was, how do you get that group of successful British athletes and coaches to do the same thing rather than just sit there and go, but we're gold medal winners, it must work.
0: Yes, so it's always looking to the future, you, you yeah can.
2: and it and it's that human thing which is you know as I said this the the really interesting thing about in a business environment, you know, you you come up with an idea you're passionate about, you build your business small, your business, if you get it right, and the conditions are right, and and, and what you're doing is good quality, you grow, right? Now, during that process, the company's innovative, it's flexible, it's fast moving, there's a culture of excitement. And then you, you suddenly get to a point where you've really become profoundly successful, you might have shareholders, you'll have a board of, you know, of professionals who are now holding you to account, you've got staff who are relying on the business's success for their jobs and their pensions and all the rest of it, and suddenly that ability to be instinctive and to be flexible sort of fades away because then it's about protectionism and and maintenance and the really interesting thing is how do you create that culture in succeeding businesses that allows them to become sustainably able to change and develop it's a very interesting challenge that a lot of the big tech companies in the world have encountered over the years you know places like Microsoft who 50 years ago ripped up the rule book and and basically own technology. And then over the last 20 or so years have put all their resources, I suppose, arguably rightly into the development of the new technologies and forgotten entirely about the money-making arm of the Microsoft business, which is licensing, right? And so whilst they were doing really innovative things with new technologies, they hadn't created the capacity for the accountants and the lawyers and the compliance people in their licensing teams to also think differently and develop their side of the product. And as a result, Microsoft was still producing quite cool product, but they were still trying to sell them in very traditional ways, which allowed new kids on the block to overtake them like Google who came along suddenly with subscription models which were totally different and much more flexible and modern.
0: So it's keeping that almost entrepreneurship idea as you get successful, as you get more successful, and you become a big company, you need to keep that idea in your head. Well, we got to see what the next thing is. What's the next thing?
2: Absolutely, you know. And and one of the things that that you know we're really here to discuss today is this whole art of leadership. And one of the really interesting things about leadership, and you see it all the time, particularly in small businesses or family startup, family run businesses through generations, is that ability to you know you you start up a business it takes a huge amount of courage to start up a business really and when you start up that business you're galvanized by your courage your absolute passionate belief in what it is you're seeking to achieve you have a passion for the vision and values of what it is you want to seek to create and as that business grows and by its nature you have to start to employ more and more people to support you and, and help you build that business it becomes very hard a to transfer that passion and that commitment because your employees to an extent can just be that they'll rock up do their jobs get paid and go home thank you very much and so on one level it's how do you transfer and communicate that passion sense of purpose and vision on another and I think this is really challenging for small and medium-sized businesses who have owner founders is how do you know when to let go and how do you know how and when to allow others to take the reins and take the lead of what was your baby? You know, it's, it's almost as emotionally difficult as when you have children of your own and the day comes for you to drop them at nursery or school for the first time and you have to trust other people with their care and development. And I think for some business owners and leaders, it's a very similar emotional f- reflex and challenge.
0: Come back to trust, something that's very important in the way you advise people about leadership. Trust, communication, empowerment, and impact are the words that sort of spring to mind when I look at the work that you've done. How important is it for leaders to trust? their workers
2: hugely hugely important because there has to be authenticity in that leadership you know and again so much of what i've learned around leadership comes from my time perversely of teaching young kids you know because it's the same with your children if you turn around to your teenage kids and you say look i trust you to um to go out, come home at the right time, you know, not do anything stupid while you're out. You can go out with your mates, that's absolutely fine. And then as they're halfway down the high street, they see you stalking them in the car to 15 metres behind them. That's going to fracture that trust completely. And to an extent, it's very difficult to let go and allow that trust to thrive. But it is that two-way process, right? And in a business, it's exactly the same thing. I see a lot of leaders and managers who desperately want to empower their staff and other people in the organisation to do stuff, but still quadruple check every move and every action. And of course, what that then leads to is a real sense of suspicion and and you know people going well you know they talk a good game but they don't actually let us do the stuff we want to do there isn't really and that can be really dangerous because then you create not just a culture of of mistrust but cynicism in an organization and cynicism amongst a staff is one of the most dangerous poisons when it comes to the ability to truly lead and empower
0: people i've written a, a sentence down here which has resonated with me, great leadership is first and foremost about serving the needs of the people who work for you.
2: yeah. I mean, i I've always believed that one of the great responsibilities and tests of the quality of a person's leadership is perversely to get to a point where you do yourself out of a job. because for me, you know, management is all about compliance. Management, I believe anyone can manage, and this might be a controversial thing to say. I think anyone can manage because if you have power over somebody, you have control over that person's salary or bonus or professional development program or targets or whatever else it is, or even the power to hire and fire people, right? Ultimately, people will be subservient and do what you tell them to do. So that to me is management. Leadership isn't about compliance and control. It's about empowerment. Leadership is about identifying the talents and abilities in others, inspiring them, giving them a sense of purpose, and then letting them off the leash and letting them run with stuff to a point where ultimately, yeah, you want to be able to do yourself out of a job because you want to be able to sit there one day and go, oh my goodness me, I know I want to feel unbelievably valuable and irreplaceable to these people, but they're actually getting on with the job and making this company evolve and develop better than I ever could. And it's a really difficult thing, again, on a human emotional basis. I remember as a head teacher, knowing that my time had come when I was looking around at the school, realising that these incredibly talented, passionate, committed people, you know, the, the staff, the the parents, and most importantly, the children, were running this place better than I ever could with vision and values and, and sustainable innovation and development. And sitting there in my office one day thinking, actually, if I'm now going to impose my will and my kind of level of control, I'm probably going to get in people's way. But I think it was a very profound time. And at the end of it, I came out with huge pride and thought, you know what? It's okay now to feel that my job here is done. It is probably time for me to move on and for a different kind of leader manager to, to come into this environment. Because the danger would have been that I would have started to innovate and take control for my own self-interest, not necessarily for what was right for the community I served. And, and, you know, I suppose it's my teacher instinct in me that I absolutely believe that my role as a teacher was not to create a culture where the children relied on me, but actually to create a culture where the children were capable of learning on their own and for themselves and with each other, and that I was there to support them. Now, to some, that might sound a little kooky, but the truth is if you want to create a culture of proper sustainable development, that transference of control and power is absolutely vital because if you don't do it, you'll end up burning yourself out. You'll end up coming up with, you know, you'll, you'll die of ideas. You'll end up in a high level of stress because you feel the weight of the world on your shoulders. And I think it, it's one of the easiest things to talk about and one of the most difficult things to enact.
0: Wow. It's, um, It's quite empowering to listen to you speak in that way it's trust is such an enormous enormous gift to give to somebody I trust you to do this job but you got there through a route to leadership through education as you've just mentioned but how did you get to that point where did you come from how did you get to
2: it's a, it. A, I mean, because you
0: you you came to university to yeah.
2: Well, it's a yeah. So I I came to Derby. Actually, uh, I'll, if I haven't mentioned it already, I'll mention it again as a proud alumni. I came here before it was a university. I came to the Derby College of Higher Education in 1989 really if I'm honest with no clue about what I wanted to do with my life because up until that point and I was a late student actually as as many of the students at Derby are I think one of the things we should be proudest of is that we're a, a place that attracts a number of mature students from a whole range of backgrounds and even then as a college of higher education it had a reputation for being somewhere for mature students and I wasn't that mature but I was still two years out of school. And and my dream in my final years at school and, and then going out into the big wide world had actually been to become an actor and very quickly realised there was a big flaw in my plan, which was essentially I was rubbish. <laughs> um, and so I had to have a plan B. But the problem was that when I did my A-levels, I was already given a place in rep in London. So as a 17-year-old, I thought I was going to be Olivier because I was in rep in London and actually blew my A-levels pretty much because I was arrogant.
0: Don't need those. No, I'm I'm going to be a superstar. I'm going to be an actor.
2: Um, I'm going to be Olivier. And then, of course, when it all fell around my feet looked at my A-level results that I've got a bit of a problem here. I'd passed them but only just and not with the sort of grades that these days students accrue. Um, I'm not entirely sure where I would have ended up in the modern university round of applications. But anyway And also, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And in those days, Derby College of Higher Education ran what they called, it was one of the very first, I think, we were innovative back then, one of the very first modular style degrees where you could pick from a kind of smorgasbord, a menu of different themes over the three three years and pick a module here and a module there and you accrued the points and the points then gave you a degree. And it was one of those where on the smorgasbord was performance, so I was able to do, theatre and acting writing for publication which I did visual communications which was a kind of posh term for graphic design those, those were the modules I picked so they were all the things that I loved you know it was like having a box of Quality Street without the peanut cracknel <laughs> everything I wanted to eat and and so that's what I did I came here but in it, towards the end of my first year my master plan of just enjoying and immersing myself and that was kind of disrupted which is often the way for many people because I fell in love I fell oh, in love. Right. yeah I know And, you know, really just not opportune at all. But anyway, I I fell in love with a young woman who was also a student here, who was a couple of years ahead of me because she'd got the grades day one and didn't want to be an actress and knew she wanted to be a teacher, which was handy. She was coming to the end of her degree. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, in in order to blag a date with her, I told her that teaching was the greatest thing on earth because she was trained to be a teacher at the college at the time. And she held me to that. We were still together when I finished my degree two and a half years later. And she said, right, I think you should become a teacher now. And and it, she enrolled me on the postgraduate teacher training course here at Derby. Became a teacher. Loved it. Thought that was my career. It was honestly, a pr- you know, very few people, I think, are lucky enough to roll in on day one of the job that they've trained for and genuinely believe that they are in heaven, that they are absolutely in that right. And getting up in the morning's easy when that happens.
0: And did you teach in Derby?
2: Yeah, I did. I taught uh, initially at Chattersdon Park Junior School and then I got promoted after a few years and got a deputy headship in Ripley at St. John's opposite the police, just down the road from the police headquarters in Ripley. Then I got seconded to Derbyshire Local Authority to do some work there. Was enjoying that, was only a couple of months in. Um, and actually I'd been seconded to work for the local authority on trying to create projects to remotivate demotivated boys, particularly in reading and writing. Anyway, one of the schools they wanted me to try and entice onto the programme that we were developing was a a primary school in Long Eaton called Grange, and I walked in there to, to have a meeting with the acting head teacher. I found out when I was there that the the substantive head had been off on stress for about 18 months and they were waiting to take him through the process of ill health capability. Um, He'd had a, very sadly, um, a a breakdown. And it was a struggling school, very in, in very serious trouble, actually. And I fell in love with the place. And, you know, you it's a bit, I describe it to people a bit like, you know, you go house hunting and you can see 15 houses which all have the same floor plan and look identical on the details. But there was something about the soul of the place. You know, I walked in in the same way that when you're house hunting and just fell in love. And I can't tell you what it was. It's just, I remember standing there about an hour into my visit thinking, I love this place and I, I would love to be able to work here. Anyway, was it, was it
0: the, the people who were I there? I think it the, was
2: the people. I think it was the building, which was yeah. quite unique. It looked a bit like Hogwarts. Fantastic building. The kids were just, you could feel the energy bouncing off the walls. And, and remember, this was a school that was being labelled as one of the worst in the whole of Derbyshire. You know, there are over 400 schools in Derbyshire, and this one was pretty much near the the bottom of the pile, right? And um, I don't know. Anyway, I I left my meeting. I couldn't get it out of my head. So the next day, because I knew the headship was coming up, and I went to see the director of education in Matlock. And I said, look, when that job comes up, I'd love to apply for it. And he said, well, okay, good luck. Anyway, again, to cut a very long story short, I got the job, which was an extraordinary thing. I got the job, a big primary school, nearly 500 kids in a in a really challenging state. And that's where the journey began for me, right? So then I just, I just used the – really interesting, going back to something we said earlier – It was really easy to be innovative because the school had nothing to lose. right? If it had been a school that was high performing or had been graded as outstanding by the inspectorate or whatever, or the exam results were through the roof and parents were queuing up to get their kids into that school, it would have been far more challenging to go on and do what we did.
0: Because they would have said, oh, we've always done this. This has worked.
2: Yeah. Why would we change it? Right. And it's working. So just shush, Richard, just simmer down. And um, But of course, it was a school that was at completely the other end of the spectrum. And in hindsight, one of the really interesting things I've said ever since that day is if I was back in education and in the market for a headship now, I would never want to take on a successful school because the joy is taking on a place with nothing to lose. And I would say it. it's the same in business. As I said before, it's much easier to be in charge of a startup or a business that you happen to buy or take over that's struggling because you can be innovative, because there aren't people there going, well, hold on, it works, so let's just keep doing what we've always done.
0: But the music industry worked, the elite sports, exactly. the Olympics worked, but you've got to keep looking for what's...
2: Exactly right. You've got to keep evolving. And so that's what we did. You know, we had an a, amazing journey, which maybe we'll talk on an... an, an yeah,
0: well, how, how long were you there?
2: I was there for just over seven years. If people want to, I mean, I'm not plugging it because it would sell books, but if people want to go into the detail of the story, my very first book, Creating Tomorrow's schools today tells the story of what we did but suffice it to say that when i took over the school was bottom in derbyshire one of the lowest performing schools in the country and within 18 months our exam results were in the top five percent of the the entire country and we won the unesco world education award
0: i was going to say you you attracted interest from all over the world
2: And we'd done things dramatically differently. And that was because, A, it's very interesting. I describe myself when I, looking back now, when I took over the job as a naive leader, which is a great danger because you are naive enough to not know what could happen to you if it goes wrong and arrogant enough to believe you're right which is a really interesting mix, right? And I went in there with just absolute belief in, in the art of the possible and said to the community, come on, let's rebuild this in a whole different way. Let's not focus on being obsessed with the inspectorate or exam results. Let's be obsessed with our kids and have the belief that if we focus on creating amazing individuals... They'll cope with whatever is thrown at them, be it an exam or anything
0: else. And how popular was that outside of that environment?
2: Well, it was hugely popular in the community because it was unbelievably empowering a lot of the teachers in that school when I started had been there all their careers the the three other members of the senior leadership team had been there between them at that school for over a hundred years between them but this was a very empowering because they'd been oppressed by targets and outcomes and outcomes and targets and I said come on let's just let's just go back to to the purpose and passion of what we believe in so it's very attractive for the community because for the first time in many years a lot of those teachers who when they'd gone into the profession were deeply passionate and committed people, I'd given them the license to be deeply passionate and committed again rather than focus constantly on just doing whatever it takes to hit outcomes. And as a result, of course, what you create is an incredibly persuasive, positive and dynamic culture where everybody feels that they can develop their ideas and processes, they re-engage with their passion, their skill, because they were all highly trained professionals. And what they achieved was Truly remarkable. And of course, that passion transfers to the children. And so, over that seven year period, we created an extraordinary environment that flourished on every single indicator and level. And that's where it began for me and where I started because a lot of what I did in the early years was purely instinctive. I I wasn't trying to be a superstar or to eventually become an author or a speaker. I just wanted to do a good job for the kids in my community. And it's only in the years since, with the benefit of hindsight, that you start to understand actually why those successes scored and, and you start to then look at the generics of those issues to see how they could be applied in other contexts.
0: You mentioned earlier about getting to the end of a journey and realising you have to move on. You got to the end of that journey and realised you had to move on. You went into public speaking. Yeah. So how did that change come about? Wow.
2: So I was... I was about five years into my tenure at Grange when, inevitably, because our our reputation had started to inhabit all kinds of environments, political, education, not just in the UK but globally, inevitably I was increasingly being asked to go and speak at events or talk to other leaders in education and policy makers. And so I was doing that a lot, increasingly, actually, towards the end of my tenure. And there were a number of things that were buzzing around my head. One was, I'd, as I described already, I was getting to that point where I knew that my time in that school was probably coming to an end because the evolution had reached a point where they needed a different kind of leader. You know, I'm, I'm very, I've got a very low boredom threshold. I, I'm, I'm ignited by innovation and challenge and change and, and that kind of stuff. And I knew the school now needed a period of kind of reflective stability and just time to embed and truly develop the culture. So I knew that my time was coming to an end because the danger would be that I would have just carried on innovating for my own self-interest. And also Pandora's box had been opened because I have to confess that this world I didn't even know existed of traveling and shooting your mouth off and meeting incredible people in different environments had suddenly been opened up to me. So I got to that point after seven years for a whole variety of reasons. One, that I was never at home because I was traveling so much. And if I wasn't traveling, I was trying to catch up on the job I was actually supposed to be doing. Two, Pandora's box. I got to a point where I thought, well, do I give this a go? And it was a deeply challenging time in our lives as a family because, you know, by that time, I had a great salary as a good head teacher. I was leading a school which had a global reputation and frankly had the capacity to continue to be fabulous.
0: You talk about global reputation, you had people visiting from all yeah, over the my,
2: world. My final year, we had visitors from over 130 countries. You know, I didn't even know there were that many countries, which was just unbelievable. And and so I got to a point where I thought, well, you know, I, I have two options at this point in the road, right? One is I stick with the job I know I can do and can sit it out and just enjoy the fruits of the labours and and being in this community, which I loved, by the way, don't get me wrong. I was very fortunate. I'm not one of those people that left education because I'd become cynical or exhausted or
0: bored or... Just just to interrupt you there, if you'd found a school like Grange yep. in a similar position to Grange would you have gone back in and done it all uh, over again
2: I don't know because my fear was that our experience had been so unique it was a kind of once in a I knew even then it was a once in a lifetime now yeah there could have been a civic responsibility on me to have done that but I'm not sure that my heart and soul and, and drive would have been in it because to me what it, what had it ended up it, it, it had been a once in a lifetime experience
0: and you weren't the same person because you were five years further exactly, on exactly
2: and wiser and no longer ignorant and arrogant as a young leader and and so it was a different phase for me so there were two options one was to stay and the other was to come out and to give this opportunity that I'd been you know presented with blessed with really of traveling around the world speaking and also by then I knew people were interested in me writing a book and actually you know I was procrastinating as many of us do saying well hold on on the one hand I've got a really good salary a fantastic cast-iron pension plan and a, and a pretty good life. And on the other hand, for the first time in my life as I was approaching 40, thinking – or I give up a salary, a pension, and all that security. We had two young kids at home. I had a family. And, and you know, you, you sit there procrastinating. We all do it. We all do it. And we always look for the reasons why we shouldn't do something, right? And actually, it was my wife who turned around to me, and she's a remarkable woman. So we're still together, that young girl that I met at college. And she's a head teacher and, and a phenomenal educator in her own right. And she sat me down one night over a, a meal and a glass of wine. She said, right, let's look at it this way. You've spent nearly 20 years telling kids to seize opportunity and take risks. She said, "Now you can either be a hypocrite and stick with the safe or you can go out there and try doing what you've told them to do for two decades." And that was the kick up the backside I needed. And and so yeah, that was the that was the moment at which I I decided to give it a go. And and at that time selfishly I thought, "Well, you know, I'll give this a a, a shot because, you know, in the next couple of years if it doesn't work out, I can always go back to
0: the job I loved." so you started talking was it initially you were speaking about education
2: yeah so what happened was in the first couple of years i I managed to get myself an agent actually through uh, my mentor and friend who's a, a hugely renowned global speaker has been for many decades a man called sir ken robinson and if people are interested just get them to look up sir ken robinson ted and they'll know what i'm talking about and he introduced me to his agent and he said look this this team will help you a little bit rationalize and I didn't know where to start. And so initially, I thought, well, you know, I'll I'll talk about what I know, which is education. And actually, Brendan, who's now become a dear friend, who's my manager and agent, said to me very early on, he said, actually, when you tell your story, what you don't realise is so much of the leadership stuff and the stuff around change and your experience is deeply generic. And you've got to remember that I was coming out to do this full time at around the time of the global financial crisis when companies all over the world were starting to question everything about their practice and the way they were working and particularly around the human impact on and change and leadership and all of those things and I guess you know my approach was fresh and different I wasn't one of these speakers that had won an Olympic gold medal and stood there showing a video of me winning a gold medal and then was inspirational for 45 minutes and everyone in the audience going that was amazing but we've got no idea how that relates to us or you've got a dragon's den superstar multimillionaire standing there telling everyone in the audience how they became a multimillionaire entrepreneur and again you know and and I was different I was a primary school teacher going let me tell you how I would lead a group of RC 10-year-olds on a cold wet Thursday afternoon and what was really interesting was at that time it captured the imagination of the business community so very very quickly I started to have the confidence and courage to realise some of the generics of what I was talking about. And the more I did it and the more I would talk with the businesses I was working with, I realised how the stories connected. And and having been in a world – and I think most people are guilty of this, to be honest – you believe whatever industry you're in that your issues and problems are unique – To your business sector, your industry, and that actually you only ever seek advice and learning from other people who've done what you've done. And and what I realised very quickly was how much of this was generic, and how exciting it was to hear the examples from other contexts which related back to your own experience. So that's how I started to evolve my speaking career. And at the same time, I was very fortunate because my first book, Creating Tomorrow's Schools, had done really, really well as an education book, and other. Publishers started knocking on my door saying, we've seen the numbers for this little education book. Have you got anything else in your locker that could be more generic? And I was beginning to discover for myself at the time, the stuff around leadership and change and learning environments. So that's where the more generic books started to happen and change in particular, change, learn to love it, learn to lead it which changed everything for me perversely because when it was published it went to number 1 in the business book charts and was all over WH Smith's at airports and train stations and people were picking it up off the shelves reading it and hiring me uh, as a speaker and and so that's really how it evolved i was very lucky right place right time i suppose a little bit of courage a tiny bit of skill and knowledge and then an awful lot of chutzpah to be able to go out there and <laughs> have the confidence to blag it <laughs> (laughs) (laughs)
0: So moving on thoroughly to leadership, what are the key themes in, in what you feel are important in leadership? For me, there are a number, you know,
2: the first is authenticity. I think it's really important as a leader to not believe your role is to know everything, do everything, be in control of everything, but genuinely to be passionate about other people and passionate about the organisation you're leading, to have the confidence to share your own frailty as well as your own strength, to be committed to the belief that your job is is to create a culture of assumed excellence rather than assumed incompetence. And what I mean by that is not be tempted because of your lack of trust in your people to just create a controlling environment where everything is measured by set targets and set outcomes, but actually to believe in your people and at least create a culture where they feel you believe in them and you give them space and opportunity to develop their ideas, to collaborate with one another, and occasionally to take a strategy off in a direction that you hadn't thought about. I think those things are extremely important. I think what's also vital as a leader is to give yourself the space and time to constantly reinvest in your own imagination. And what I mean by that is, again, you know, as as leaders, particularly in SMEs, we tend to believe that we have to spend every minute of every day inside our organisation so people can see us working really hard. And actually what we do then is we, to the detriment of our own professional development we don't give ourselves the space and time to go out and just talk to other people to have the opportunity to look at other businesses to experience other environments because actually the greatest point of being a leader is to be the stimulus for constant imagination and and curiosity. And you can only do that if your curiosity and imagination is constantly being fired. So you've got to spend time networking and stepping outside the organisation. And of course, that does two things. One, it allows you to refresh and to stimulate. And two, it gives the people left inside your business the space and time to lead and manage for themselves.
0: And what do you see as the the antithesis of, of that what you're trying to teach you things that people should be wary of i mean
2: i think the the, the biggest challenge for people as as i've kind of intimated a couple of times already is that they feel that they are the business and everything relies on them and every decision has to go through them and this culture of control and assuming that everyone around you is incompetent nobody else gets it that the belief that you actually have to work 27 hours a day uh, and you know I was never a mathematician but you know what I mean that people are working so hard all the time just to to keep up and believe that that's their responsibility and that's how they show their staff and their employees how much they care and how passionate they are. They actually, the danger is you get locked into, I suppose, the Taylorist cycle that everything has to end with efficiency. And actually, that's the danger that pretty much all of us have been educated and trained to believe in the Taylorist cycle of efficiency, which is if you focus on efficiency, you increase productivity. If you increase productivity, you increase profitability. If you increase profitability, you invest that back in efficiency, right? Now, that's fine in a culture where, actually, you keep making or delivering on exactly the same thing month after month, week after And early. people
0: always want that.
2: Right? Well, it, that's the idea. And that's where the music industry was, for example, right? But the truth is that in order to survive, in in particularly in the modern world that we're living in, you have to be able to constantly evolve it needs to be more kaizen you need to be constantly making incremental developments and changes and shifts no matter how successful you are no matter how busy you are I remember a number of years ago talking to having the opportunity to talk to Steve Wozniak the co-founder of Apple about Apple's development and he said you know one of the greatest challenges for us when we started out was we were working out of Steve Jobs stepdad's garage we were tinkering with stuff we had our friends around us And very quickly, we started to have major investment and major expectation, and we were going to have to recruit people, right? And they went out for a beer one night, Jobs and Wozniak. And Jobs turned around to Woz and said, you know, if we're to make this company last Was, we can't be a company that makes stuff. Because if all we do is once we've designed it, we just make it and sell the same thing, we'll be dead in this valley in five years. You know, they were in Silicon Valley. And he said, you know, we have to be a company that keeps giving the world stuff it doesn't know it needs yet. That's our only chance of survival. And the reason that once they'd had that conversation, they had a secondary conversation which led to, so what kind of people are we looking to hire and populate our business with? And again, what they meant by that was they knew they were in Silicon Valley at the heart of the gold rush, right? And they were, they could have clicked their fingers and hired the smartest, cleverest people in tech and science and maths anywhere in the world because they were all heading to Silicon Valley at the time. But what they knew was they needed something different. So that night they came up with a mantra, a promise to each other about the kind of people they were going to hire. And when I got the chance to, to meet with Wozniak, he said, you know, Richard, it must work because Apple still use it today as a core philosophy around their hiring process and like all things that Apple have developed particularly during jobs tenure and life on the surface these things look incredibly elegant and simple but you scratch underneath and the complexity is vast and I ask people listening to this to consider this mantra because I think it could well be if you can find the answer to it, it it's the challenge to everything because the mantra they came up with was at Apple we will never employ anyone who needs managing and I think that is the the great challenge for leadership and the the trap we end up in is we overmanage and we don't allow people the space time and trust to manage themselves and that's the answer to creating for me a sustainably evolving business
0: so how do companies businesses change the way their managers their leaders work how do you invest in your leaders
2: this is the the, the million dollar question and i think the first thing is not just to promote people because they're next in line or promote them because they happen to be particularly good at the job they're doing and the reward is you promote them into management. I think it's a profound understanding that leadership in its own sense is an art form that it needs investing in, that you need people who are hugely confident in themselves, who are emotionally intelligent, that have the confidence and courage to genuinely promote the ideas and behaviours of others. They, they almost have to be selfless. So, The first stage is making sure you know what you're looking for in the leaders in your company. You know that if you have a culture, a vision, a sense of purpose and values, that the people you're looking to promote are those kind of people. That we don't just have to promote people into leadership or or develop them or invest in them as leaders because they've served their time and their time is now. But actually, the, the, the last person you hired who walked through the door could be the next chief executive or CFO or whatever else it is And if you identify the traits and behaviours in them young and early in their tenure, then then work on them then and there. But for me, it's about a constant belief that the job is to develop those people as human beings, to get them immersed as, uh, as quickly as possible in your passion, your sense of purpose, your vision, and also to throw them out the door and give them opportunities to develop outside of your company.
0: So doing exactly the same thing that you want them to do with the people under them, exactly. you know, give you know, them space yeah. to create to think. model
2: model the behavior because you know it's not rocket science if you model that behavior and immerse people in it then that's how they'll evolve and how they'll develop that behavior and culture too you know for me the whole thing is about a cultural evolution and by the way this is not something you can just do overnight you know you have to have as a leader the courage to know that cultural transformation Takes years, not weeks or months. So don't believe you can throw quick fix initiatives at stuff because all that'll do is build the cynicism inside the organization and it won't actually result in a long term sustainable culture of change and transformation.
0: And this is just as important with small businesses as large. Hugely
2: so. And as I said before, you know, often more challenging because the people who are running those small businesses are founder owners who have passion and belief and commitment to the baby they. Bore and bread, and actually, the real challenge is to know when your time is right to bring in other people to create new stimulus and development. Because otherwise, what tends to happen is your idea runs out of steam, and because you care so much, you haven't ever trusted anybody else to take it on. And you see it so often in the pattern of small business development that what was a really thriving small business ends up dying because no one's ever allowed it to evolve because you've never had the courage and confidence to allow others to take on the reins
0: it's it's a it's a difficult thing to do isn't it that changing the way you think is Massive. It's just
2: and and that's why you know i think that that businesses shouldn't wait until they're successful to develop that culture every new business should have as part of its business action plan how am i going to constantly create a stimulating environment where i am both stimulated and challenged by other people and by other experiences and how do i make sure i don't just hire people who worship the ground i work on do what i ask them to do but will actually charge into my office office. on a daily basis and challenge me. Because the only way you evolve as a business is is to ensure that you yourself are prepared to step out of your comfort zone. You know, one of the things I learned when I was a teacher was that you learn nothing new by getting something right. You only ever learn something new from the point of a mistake or the realisation you don't know something or you can't do something. And the danger when you're leading a small business is you just isolate yourself in an environment of things you're comfortable with and know you understand.
0: Right, we're coming to the end of our podcast today. I'm going to ask you, what do you consider has been your greatest achievement, given you the most satisfaction out of everything you've done?
2: Wow. Well, I mean, obviously, outside of my personal life and marrying the the right human being and uh, having a wonderful set of kids, because if they're listening to this, they'd expect me to say that. I think for me, it had to be taking on the tenure as the headship at Grange and seeing a community reignite and flourish you know and and all these years later to hear the stories of some of the children that we had in those early days and it is one of the profound luxuries and joys of of a former career in education that you suddenly bump into people who are now in their mid-30s who you were teaching when they were were young kids and to see how they've flourished and they've taken on that sense of courage and innovation and can-do and entrepreneurship and opportunity and seen how they've used that in, in their own lives. And, and you know those moments which are, are spectacular as a former teacher when they come up to you and say, you know, that's where that attitude came from. And and so for me, yeah, every child I've ever taught is the special moment in my career.
0: Wow. Okay, now this is this is the big question. The single most important piece of business advice you can give to our podcast listeners?
2: I think the most important piece of business advice I can give you is uh, turn off the podcast get on your contacts list, arrange a meeting with somebody that you've not seen for a very long time who's in your network, who does something that's completely outside the scope of your business or professional development. Go find a really cozy coffee shop, buy a big, long uh frothy coffee and just chat to one another and you will be amazed at how stimulating that is and what you can take back to your business in terms of innovation and development so
0: go out and learn something new basically absolutely
2: absolutely and commit yourself to doing that every single week
0: so well thank you very much for joining us richard now where can people find you? You're, you've got your own website?
2: I, I have, yeah. They they can find me uh, on Amazon. If they type me in there, there's uh, four books there, two which are about education and two which aren't, Change and, and Simple Thinking. They can find me on my website, which is just uh, on Twitter, which is at Richard Girver, and Facebook and all sorts of other places as well. And also they will find me regularly trawling the halls of the University of Derby, which is somewhere I'm still profoundly connected to and proud of
0: well thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you
2: and likewise thank you so much for having me
0: And now I'm joined by my co-host Angela Tooley again and we've heard from Richard a very interesting uh, story he's got and how he's started out as an educator and talking about cross pollination with other businesses. He now gives advice to other businesses from the things he's learnt within education.
1: Yes, quite definitely. I mean, if if you want a a great example to demonstrate how ideas and inspiration can come from anyone and any sort of sector, then Richard's interview certainly demonstrates that.
0: So Richard's main theme is the art of leadership. This is something that he has learned for himself as he's gone along. And he talks about the art of leadership is very different to management.
1: It's interesting because I sat and listened to his interview and I... I kind of reflected on my journey as a, as a leader. And I think a lot of people who've evolved into that role probably have some sort of similar sorts of experiences and things like that in terms, You do feel your way quite a lot. There is no textbook that teaches you how to be a leader. And this perhaps explains one of his First, concepts that he picks up on is the difference between leadership and management. And for me, management, I think, is probably much more transactional. It's more perhaps process, output driven, and things like that. It is a lot more teachable and things like that versus leadership is not something you can give someone a textbook to do as I said earlier you kind of feel your way it isn't about intelligence or age or or social standing and for me it's trust is an integral part of leadership because actually that's the bit that allows people to have the confidence to explore and be inspired and have something that is beyond a job and is something that gives them a reason for being in their career. I always think leading a team of people is very much like being a parent and you you almost, if you think about sort of what you do when your children are growing up and, and 16 and, and, and 10, is that you give them so much, you set some boundaries around which you want them to work and they work to that and you let them explore within those boundaries. It's that sort of manage that just sort of allows them to explore but also ensures that they deliver and are focused on what is required.
0: It's about moving into new territories. It's about having ideas to take it further, but you need a conversation about that.
1: You need a conversation. It's more about making sure that what they're doing is aligned to the company's vision, deliverables and targets that are set because ideas are great, but ultimately you kind of need to sort of help them think about, well, actually, which are the ones that relate to our ultimate goals and our ultimate vision? And, you know, are they going to help contribute to that? And they're the ones that perhaps you prioritize first and you take forward first, because otherwise you can just become busy fools uh, and just busy tinkering without any purpose.
0: So, leadership in essence is to have a good overview so you know what's going on and you know what's coming next yes. because things do change, things don't stay the same. And it's, it's being able to say, and Richard makes a good point about this with some of the companies he's worked with, some of the industries he's worked within, is don't sit with what you're doing whether it's successful or not always look to see where the change is coming
1: absolutely and I think some people find it quite hard to explain what good leadership is but actually everyone can tell you a story of someone who they work for or they've observed who was a poor leader and it's those sorts of things someone who micromanages and who, who doesn't look beyond next week next month and things like that so you know as a leader you need to be future focus, leave the day-to-day and the operational stuff to the trusted team that you have around you. And once you've built that, that allows you to look beyond and you can see what's coming and you can start then preparing people for that, communicating that to your team so they can start thinking, well, what's next?
0: Does it surprise you that Richard's been brought into work with people within huge industries, very successful companies that haven't been doing that? and suddenly find themselves going, ah, what happened there? It's all changed. We didn't see that coming.
1: Yeah. And I think it's for, I was going to say for different reasons, large businesses have those sorts of challenges as well as small businesses. I think within large businesses, one of the biggest challenges is that people are very functionally based. So you're there to do a specific role within a specific department, within a specific part of an organisation. We see it in the university. We're collegiate. I work in the College of Business Law and Social Sciences. It's hard enough sometimes for me to keep up with what's happening in my own college without you know having the time to necessarily understand what's happening everywhere else and how what I'm doing fits in with what's happening on a broader spectrum. I make sure in my role because of the nature of my role that I have to take time and I spend time doing that. But it is quite difficult to be able to do that in a large business. In a small business it's a different sort of challenge in the fact that you are spread very thin. And actually you are quite often at the call of the latest customer phone call, uh, the latest operational challenge, the fact that perhaps a co-worker's not turned in so you're having to cover their job as well. So you get caught up in the day-to-day sorts of challenges and things like that. So you don't get the time to look outside, to see what's coming, to see what your competitors are doing, what's happening in the market and things like that. And it is really important to take that time out, even if it's just half an hour over breakfast, which is what I quite often do, just catching up in terms of. Of what's happening in the marketplace, what's happening on the news, on uh, the business news. That, you know, you can get a plethora of eShots sent to you about what's happening in business in your local region or in your sector or thing. And just to scan that sometimes is good enough information and it's certainly better than nothing because it just sort of flag what others are doing and maybe makes you think about, well, actually, I perhaps need to take some time and explore Something a little bit further based on what I've just scanned this morning and things like that.
0: People struggle to make that time though. It, it's difficult when it's particularly in the in the small business to be able to create that new motivation. So how important is it to?
1: It is, and it's important. It's important you do firstly for your own self as a leader and for your own personal development, but also as a role model to show what your employees should be doing and encourage your employees to do that as well. What you tend to see is that the best ideas come from within an organisation, not necessarily from the top. They're the ones doing the job day in, day out. They're the ones meeting and greeting the customers and the supplies and things like that. So actually, it's really important that you act as that role model and allow them to spend that time to do it as well. Richard made an interesting point that, and I think he based it on his experience of when he was the head teacher in Long Eaton, that it's kind of easy to be successful and make big steps when you're in a failing company or when you're starting out or things like that, because there's always something to do. There's some fairly low hanging fruit that you can do. There's some quick wins and actually in Innovation is fairly easy to do, but as your company grows, as what you do becomes business as usual, then it does become more difficult. And
0: he made the point that further on down the line, he's changed as well. So somebody new coming in would maybe have more of those original ideas.
1: Exactly. And I, I reflect back again and I... You know I look at the times where I was less motivated in my career, and it was those times where actually I'd done all the exciting stuff, and I recognized that I was perhaps ready to do on. I think Richard and I are probably quite similar in character we, we know we we like that excitement and the cutting thrust at the start of something and things like that, but actually once it becomes business as usual and it becomes mundane, I'm on to the next thing. It's interesting because you see that quite often in football, so. I've got boys so we talk about football all the time and actually you think about when you get to the end of the season and you're watching a mid-table club which is quite often where we are uh, with our local team and you sit there and you think this is absolute drivel and it's the same how do you motivate people who are mid-table in football how do you motivate those players and it's very similar in terms of how do you keep that motivation going as you're growing and some of it is about how, what the sort of people that you take on. So really, very early on, you need to be identifying what your culture is, what your values are, and making sure that you bring people in who are not necessarily similar to you, but who fit and will buy into your vision and things like that. So at least you've got people around you who can keep being motivated because they buy into where you want to take. The company.
0: Is it good to have a mix of people, a mix of personalities it's who, good to who have can mix inspire each other?
1: Yes, definitely. Uh, certainly, it's great to have that mix. It's great to have people who work together well as a team. So actually, it's not just about the individual, it's about team fit sometimes. So I have interviewed some fantastic people, but I've one of the biggest reasons why I have never appointed them is because I don't feel they would fit in with the team. They There's a risk that they perhaps might cause some conflict. They would disrupt the culture of the team and the organisation and things like that. So you need to sort of consider almost what are those different seats you want around that table. I think you also need to have that mind as well that you need people who You go back to trust. You can trust and you can rely on. But ultimately, these may be the people who you hand over the reins to. Whether because you, as a a leader in a company, are going to be promoted uh, or move on, or if it's your own business that that gets to a point where actually you might say, "I need to transfer the power over." And actually, I've built this business. This is, you know, this will always be my business. I'm always the owner of this business. But actually, in terms of the day to day running of it. I feel there are other people in this business who are now better placed, who have come in with new fresh ideas, who are more vibrant, who are younger, who will appeal more to our future customers, our future shareholders and things like that.
0: It's that brave choice, isn't it? It's a big step for some people, I'm sure.
1: It's a very brave choice, particularly if it's a business That you started yourself, you invest 24 7 into it, you invest your money into it. So actually letting go is very difficult. And we, one of my project teams, works a lot with family owned businesses and they run fairly regular strategy workshops with business owners. And one of the things that they quite often talk in that workshop about is exactly that because you don't have a plan. When you start a business, you think about, well, how am I going to get that first product developed? How am I going to get that first customer? How am I going to get that second customer? How am I going to be able to start producing a thousand a week instead of 10 a week and things like that? But actually you never really think about What's the end game? What's my exit plan? And actually, those things are really important to think about very early on in because a business. Because it depends on how
0: you grow the company.
1: Otherwise, it becomes a burden. And, and some sadly, sometimes that's what it is. It becomes a burden. And that's quite often what you see, particularly in family businesses, is that it's something that you can't get rid of. And then... You, and. Quite often, you see, if you open the local business papers, you see it of businesses that have shut, not because they are not financially viable, but simply because the owner has just decided that he no longer wants to be in that business and therefore he's had to sell it because he's done no succession planning. He's he's put no thought in terms of how it transitions, how we might be able to sell it or things like that. And sometimes sadly, the only answer is that the business is short.
0: So Angela, what's resonated with you more than anything else from what Richard's been saying?
1: I think there's probably two things. I think on a personal level, it's made me reflect and reminded me of some of the important things that I need to do as a leader, particularly the one about sort of giving yourself time and space and things like that. I think I do that very well with my team. But Sometimes at my own cost. So I think I need to be better in terms of doing that. And that's something that I personally am going to remind myself to do and make sure I put these things in my diary and go and have a coffee and things like that. I think on a professional business level, I think, you know, this important aspect of the need to constantly evolve and change and innovate and things like that. And I think people find that very scary sometimes. And I think people kind of feel that the pressure to innovate and constantly come up with something new and actually you don't need to be constantly coming up with great new ideas. Sometimes it's about making those incremental step changes not just to your products or your services but sometimes to your own internal processes or the way that you work as a team or things like that because all those things, however small, can just help bring an element of freshness back into the team and to the working environment and just sort of keep people motivated and reinvigorate them
0: thank you well i'd like to thank richard Gerver again for uh, joining us on our inspired business podcast and of course i'd like to thank angela tooley who uh, helps me navigate around the world of business thanks angela
1: pleasure as always
0: next time We'll be joined by Nicole Yeomans, who is a Green Infrastructure and Biodiversity Specialist and a University of Derby graduate. You've been listening to Inspired Business, a podcast from the University of Derby telling amazing and inspirational stories from businesses in Derby, Derbyshire and beyond. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review and tell a friend who might also like to listen. Also, If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of the show, please get in touch. You can find contact details and more information about the series at derbyacuk forward slash inspired business. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch up with you again very soon.